You are now listening to our subscriber conference call, Exploring the Racial Divide in the United States. Mark Lacey, national editor, moderated a conversation on August 29th with two national correspondents. After the chat, a few of the 1,000 participants posed questions for our journalists. I have two, um, uh, two people on the line, uh, two of the reporters on the national desk who have done exceptional work on race. And if you, if you read the Times, you've seen their bylines. So let me introduce them. John Eligo. John, are you there? I am here. Great. John is based in Kansas City uh, for the Times. Uh, he's worked at the Times since about 2005, and he covers race as a beat. Um, he travels all around the country. If there is turmoil, um, you know, John's probably in the in the middle of it. He um, has sources um, in you know every state of the union. Travels widely, um, and so John is. The, the only correspondent at the Times that that is their beat of race, um, and he does great work. Um, we also have on the line Cheryl Stolberg. Cheryl is based in Washington, D.C. She's been at the Times since 97, a couple years before I arrived. We worked together at the L.A. Times before that. She covers social issues um, out of the Washington Bureau and she um, travels widely. She has a new um, position coming up that we won't announce on this call, but that, that will be announced soon. And Cheryl was in the middle of the Charlottesville protests. Um, and uh, let's start with Cheryl telling us a little bit about what that was like, what you saw as you're in the middle of a of a of a you know major clash that it, at at the very core of it is the issue of race. So thanks, Mark. Um, well, I guess if I had to sum up Charlottesville in a word, I would say it was very chaotic. Um, you know, I was in the middle of uh, watching people beat one another with clubs. I was actually this is kind of disgusting, but I was sprayed with urine. There were water bottles and water balloons being tossed that were filled with urine and some kind of black dye. Um, as you've read and as I wrote, the police were not really engaged in stopping the violence until it truly got out of hand. So it was a very um, chaotic and upsetting situation, maybe especially upsetting for me personally because I was a student at the University of Virginia and mm -hmm. so I was going back to this beautiful idyllic place which actually is a largely a left-wing democratic city now 80 percent of Charlottesville voted for Hillary Clinton so this was sort of antithetical to the kind of college town liberal you know progressive vibe that Charlottesville has to have this incredible clashes on the ground. I'm speaking of Saturday, and of course, um, the, the previous night, there was the very unsettling march on the grounds of UVA, which we all saw the footage of with the white, tiki, the white men marching with their tiki torches. So um, all in all, upsetting, chaotic, um, scary at times. Yeah. Tell me, tell me the, the, we've written some pieces about the police response. We have, uh, we've had stories in recent days suggesting that the police held back. Did you see that? Was that I did. notable to you? 
I did see that. So here, uh, the park that the white nationalists were gathering in was a sort of square city block, and it was surrounded by barricades. There was a row of police officers inside the barricades, presumably to keep what was happening inside the park um, under control. The skirmishes and the fighting were happening outside the barricades. Um, As white supremacists and white nationalists were trying to enter the park, they were engaging in pepper spray fights and clubbings with the um, with the counter protesters, so it was all happening within view of the officers, and there were riot police kind of stationed on the outskirts, but not deployed um, until, as I said, it really got out of hand, and then the police cleared the park and said it was an unlawful assembly, and then the riot police moved in and started breaking up the crowds and moving everybody back and clearing the street. But um, absolutely, witnessed police just watching these you know, beating frenzies without stopping to, you know, jumping in to stop it. And and we've written a lot in the Times on uh, the president's reaction, sort of the fallout since Charlottesville. It's become a major political issue. Um, you're based there in Washington. Give me some of your thoughts on how Charlottesville was not just a weekend of um, Turmoil, but it's really become sort of a defining moment. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of a touchstone in a way for the conversations that we're having about race. Um, you know, the president in declaring uh, that first that he said many sides were responsible, and then he said both sides were responsible. Um, has furthered those divisions even within his own White House. Um, you know, there are Jews who doubted whether or not they should continue serving in the Trump White House um, and wondered if they ought to resign. And we saw, of course, the president's uh, business advisory councils crumble um, because business leaders were saying they couldn't condone uh, his words about the violence in Charlottesville. And so the, those several of those councils have been disbanded as a result. Mm-hmm. Now, let me, switch, let me switch over to John. John, you came in after that. You covered a lot of uh, the big protests, Ferguson, uh, many other protests. Um, te- give me a sense. Do you see, were you surprised by Charlottesville? Did it stun you that this was going on? Uh, no, I don't think I was surprised by it at all because I think, you know, one thing, you know, not just covering race, you know, part of covering race in America now is kind of knowing the history and um, talking to folks about that. And then what you'll find, you know, a lot of activists and, and academics when they talk about the history of um, kind of racial resentment and, and race kind of riots in this country. There's always kind of this, this long history of backlash, whether it be, you know, from the time of, time of Reconstruction through, you know, after, after um, the, the Civil Rights era, there's always kind of like a resistance and a pushback. I think that's um, a lot of the academics and stuff who studied this stuff, they tell me about, you know, what, where they see is the rise of Trump and kind of, um, you know, his, his rise to the presidency. It kind of coincides with this larger discontent, this larger pushback against, you know, what we saw three years ago with the forming of the Black Lives Matter movements when uh, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson and, and a lot of the, um, you know, the, the protests for racial justice back then. So a lot of people see what's going on now as really a response to that. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't seen, it seems to me, as many um, protests on the street around um, police violence. Um, is that still a, a big issue that's out there that that it, what what's what's been going on? It seems as though we've had fewer stories focused on that. Yeah, I think what we're seeing now is kind of uh, the movement maturing or entering another phase. 
and that phase really looks at how do you find, you know, action-oriented solutions through, you know, through, through the established structures and organizations. And that said, I think the, the movement that we saw forming against police violence, there's, there's kind of different parts. There are some people who want to talk about working within the system to change it, so be it running for city council, mayor, for elected office in some way. There are other people who want to kind of upend the system, and, and it's harder to kind of define what that looks like. But I think what we're seeing now, we're seeing just a natural evolution from a time where in the protests you raise awareness of the issues, you make it part of the national conversation. And once it's part of the conversation, everyone's thinking about it, then you, you, you try other means to then affect change and, and, get, and get policymakers on board to do things that will then improve the condition and should make some of the changes that you're looking for. Yep, yep, yep. Um, we have, uh, we're going to be taking um, uh, calls from, from Time subscribers, um, taking questions from them in just a minute. I'm going to anticipate a few here. And the, um, Cheryl, when you were talking earlier about Charlottesville, you used the terms, um, you know, white nationalists at one point, white supremacists at another. We've heard a lot f- from readers about what what terms we're using and why. Uh, talk through a little bit. Um, uh, are these terms interchangeable, um, alt-right? What is the right term to use today? You know, I think we're kind of still working through that in a way. We don't. There's so many different strains within, I guess, the broad uh, right-wing movement that you would call the alt-right. There are neo-Nazis. There are some who d- disavow Nazism, but they say they are white nationalists, meaning they want to, you know, advance. Uh, as some people said, we want to treat whites like an identity group. So you can advocate for black rights, black, you can advocate for, you know, white rights. There are white supremacists who believe that whites are, are and ought to be supreme. And I think we're, you know, we're really struggling with what, what is the right term to use. And frankly, I don't feel like I've come up with an answer. Some people say alt-right is, it's too tame, it's too sanitized. It doesn't call these people out for what they really believe. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's, a, it's an anodyne umbrella term, and may, maybe it is. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe we, you know, we have style gurus at the Times, as you know, people who, style editors who determine what is our style, and, you know, maybe they need to wrestle with it. Um, yeah, I, I know there's been a lot of conversations here in New York on that subject, and I think what, I mean, one thing, in addition to using these terms we try to very much describe the ideology of the group because it's very hard to, to, to know what a alt-right person believes. So we sort of say in black and white there. Right. But in a case like this where you had a big rally and it was all these people from all these different strains and it wasn't exactly a situation where it was conducive to saying to someone, can you please explain to me what your beliefs are? You know, you're just trying not to get clubbed. Right. So um, it was hard to know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And getting, not getting clubbed should be your priority. Um, (laughs) Both, both of you have written, you know, very perceptive, um, pieces about race over the years, um, and I wanted you each to sort of just just mention briefly, you know, one piece that you're particularly proud of and what it says, and, and you know, readers out there can search these out. Um, we can actually send them on to them, but, uh, you know, John Eligo, E-L-O-G-O-N, and Cheryl Stolberg. E-L-I, Mark. E-L-I, Mark. E-L-I, 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 E-L
um, and Cheryl Stolberg are the two people on the phone. And uh, let's start with you, John. Um, what talk about a piece on race that you're particularly proud of? Well, last year I wrote a story. Um, it was about Chicago gangs and a lot of the violence that's going on there. And I, I think that one was—I particularly liked that one because it was talking about issues of race without making it blatantly racial. And basically, what's happening in Chicago? You have um, just too many murders, with uh, hundreds upon hundreds uh, of murders going on there. Most of them confined to poor black uh, communities on the south side and the west side of the city. Um, and and I, I was really looking to kind of get an understanding of what is fueling this violence. It's it's not. And what I found was it's not the gangs of old, where you have like the vice lords and the crips and and, and the bloods and whatnot, and these big organizations that are that are almost run like like a mob, like like structured with you know big bosses who oversee everyone. You have a lot of these little splintered groups. And um, within these groups, you have, like, little rivalries and beasts um, kind of forming and, 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 hitting, and kind of hitting their heads against each other. And I think to look at the formation of those, again, like I talked, you got to look at the history of how those communities were formed where, you know, you had a time where you had black migrants coming from the south there, and then, you know, they settled, but they're only confined to certain areas, and then those areas are disinvested, then you have, you know, riots of the 60s, and, and that, that cycle has just perpetuated itself, and this is what it looks like today. So I think this story really takes a lot of, you know, the historic development of a lot of these communities that have been impoverished and then and there's intergenerational poverty and it really shows like what that looks like on the ground today. Yeah, that was a that was a great one. And Cheryl, how about you talk about one of the pieces that you're you're proud of that you thought got under the surface. Okay, so I- I want to mention that um, I covered with you, Mark, the Los Angeles riots in 92, and I also covered the White House when Barack Obama became president. But the story that I want to talk about is one that I wrote about Baltimore. I also covered the unrest in Baltimore, and it was six months after the death of Freddie Gray and and the unrest there. And I was asked to write kind of a profile of Baltimore, and this meant really delving into this racially divided city, a city that was still reeling and and very fragile um, after the unrest. And I tried to embed myself in different communities. I started um, with an African-American community on the city's east side at a church where um, a senior citizen center had been burned down during the unrest. And then I traveled through to... Fells Point, which is um, a white neighborhood and a very, if anybody knows Baltimore, a very um, kind of up-and-coming neighborhood of lots of boutiques and shops and restaurants and talked to white people there. And, um, and then I went into a neighborhood where there had been a lot of murders and attended um, a candlelight vigil for a 45-year-old man who was shot while sitting on the stoop of the row house that his mother owned. And um, his little cousin, nine years old, was he was shot and killed. The cousin was shot with him and survived. And um, I guess my goal in that story was to try to reflect the pain and the passion that people have in Baltimore that they were experiencing and and feeling about their city. And I, I was very proud that someone wrote to me after that story was published, and he said, you held up a mirror to our city. And I thought that was really great. Yeah, that's that's a compliment. And yeah, I was very I was very touched by that. And I I confess I, I you know this, Mark. I have a real soft spot for Baltimore. It's one of these cities that 
I just have fallen in love with. It's two-thirds African-American. People there from all walks of life have always talked to me, have always been open about their lives, no matter if they were drug dealers or, you know, wealthy business people. Um, they all love their city and want a better city. Um, and, I, and I think that also really came through in my reporting. That's great. That's great. You know, so we have about a thousand uh, people on this line. The first um, call, the first one of these subscriber calls we had was recently, and we had about a hundred people. It was on healthcare coverage. Um, this one is looking at uh, race coverage. The next uh, call um, is going to be um, rather popular. It's going to be about uh, Game of Thrones. Um, so we're going to have some of the people involved in our Game of Thrones coverage. Um, on the call right now um, are two um, classes um, uh, that I wanted to just uh, give a shout out to high school classes. So we have some seniors um, in Miss uh, Hampton's English class um, at the Arizona School for the Arts in downtown Phoenix. It's a cap stone projects that they're working on, so we um, send greetings to them. And then um, Stacy Sklar's high school class in California, these are um, seniors who are focusing on constitutional um, principles, so, so um, we, we welcome you as, as well. Um, let, let's um, let's uh, talk about one more thing before we go to, um, to questions. Um, you know, the, the Times, people who follow the Times and the press will know this, but the Times, uh, the, the staff of the New York Times is not as diverse as it, as it should be. It's nowhere near as diverse as the population it's covering. We've been... Um, We've been criticized for that, and we're certainly working to have more um, editors, more reporters of diverse backgrounds speak different languages, that sort of thing. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. Um, John, you're, you're black. You're originally from Trinidad. Um, how, does, um, how, does, how does your race affect um, your coverage when you're out there you know, writing stories about race? Well, I think, you know, one, there's this kind of thing you have to tread lightly where, and very carefully, where you obviously have um, stories that are going to mean something to you. You know, when, when you have stories of, of black death and whatnot that you're covering, it means something to you. But it's also important for me to bring that um, kind of, that, that, that objective voice to the, to the fold, to the, the one who really examines humans, the one who, and I've interviewed a white supremacist before in um in, in North Dakota and bring the same type of vigor and understanding to that story as I would when I'm interviewing a black activist in, in Ferguson, you know, so I have to um, kind of have that even keel. But the other thing I'll say about being a black reporter, like any black person in this country, you have to deal with the stereotypes and perceptions. So I'm thinking back to when I covered the courthouse when I lived in Manhattan and I used to cover courts there, I'd be at the courthouse and I'd get mistaken for a defendant, not a, not a reporter. There was one time I, you, you kind of go up to the rails to the front of the courtroom and you can like look up some of the case dockets and I was looking to see if a guy's name was there. And I was asking the court officer, asked the court officer if, um, if the certain guy was on the docket. And the court officer told me, no, just sit down and wait for your lawyer. <laughs> a little, I, I, I wasn't there to, um, for a case, but um, things like that happened. When I was in Ferguson, there was one time you, you need a press pass to go through to the media area. And I stopped, I showed him not only did I have a, a New York City press pass ID around my neck, and it was expired, and I showed him that, but I, I had it around my neck because it's big and bright and people can see it. 
he said, well, but this is expired. So then I pulled out my New York Times ID and he had to like look at it and kept studying it and whatnot. Like, um, like, like he couldn't believe that I was a reporter going through there. And, and then there was another occasion where, you know, uh, reporters were allowed to stay, but they were trying to clear the street for everyone else. And the CNN was doing a stand up right there. I was standing there with my press pass on. They said, you got to go. I said, but I'm pressed. I'm pressed. They said, no, you got to go. The, the, the line officers, the law officers in the, in the big skirmish line. Yep. And so I got in my car to leave, but then, you know, a sergeant came and told me I could stay. But it's, it's, it's these, these small things, the very tricky environment where you do, you know, you, 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 I, can't, I can't sit there and yell back at the cops because I do have to maintain that, that sense of objectivity. But then there's, you know, there's always these feelings that you kind of have to balance as you're doing this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thanks for that. And, and Cheryl, you're white, you, but you write a lot about um, uh, different racial issues. Does this help you? Does this make it more challenging? How, does it have no effect at all? Um, well, you know, I always feel like um, we are, uh, we're the products of our environments, right? We see things through the prism in which we've grown up. So my job as a reporter is to do something differently, to see things through the eyes of my subjects. So I always try to kind of immerse myself in the experiences of the people that I write about. Um, and, I, I, you know, sometimes, most times it works. Sometimes, you know, you're viewed with suspicion. I remember when I was covering the riots in Los Angeles, the day after the, the serious unrest, I was in South Central L.A., and I was doing interviews, and I was surrounded by a group of young black men, and they were very rough, and they said, hey, you know, why should we talk to you? You're white. And I said, you know, I came here to understand you. And they kind of backed off a little bit, and they did talk to me. And I've always found that, and I especially found this in Baltimore, that if you approach people honestly, um, and I always wore my press tag because I don't want people to think that I'm a cop. So um, if you approach people sort of honestly and evenly and kind of at their own level and just like a genuine human being, um, that people will, will talk. People want to tell their stories. Right, right. Great, great. So we're going to um, field some questions right now. So let's go to the first caller. Um, you can just ask away. Um, I have a question about the uh, comment made with regard to how to frame white nationalism in America and uh, the alt-right. You said that, I think I heard the speaker say that the style editors are very helpful in that regard, and I have this question. Is there a problem with calling this movement a terrorist, anti-American movement? Okay. I feel uh, like, Mark, that's a question for, for you in a way. That's, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me just tell you how we do come up with um, describing different groups and uh, describing groups as terrorist groups and descri describing groups and people as racist and using any... I mean, we have uh, an array of editors who make decisions on these different labels. We tend to not um, uh, want to editorialize, and so we will... Um, we don't sort of... We don't sort of brand people as as this or that. We don't brand a particular person as a terrorist or a racist, and we tend to um, go, you know, use the authorities or use, um, um, use other organizations or the, the history of the group that they belong to to make that determination. So we just, 
we're just very, the New York Times is just very cautious in sort of using such labels all the time. Um, we have someone else on the line. This is from um, a caller from New Jersey. Do you see any chance of Congress addressing the Voting Rights Act, which is so much related to this whole racial problem? Good question. Cheryl, do you want to... Uh... Um, you know, it's a Republican-controlled Congress. It doesn't, you know, we're not hearing anything about that on the agenda. When President Obama was in office, um, you heard more talk about it. I know Congressman John Lewis of Georgia is very interested in um, addressing the Voting Rights Act after the Supreme Court's decision, uh, basically gutting, gutting a section of it. Um, so um, while I think there is, you know certainly um, fervor on the part of Democrats to do this. Frankly, I don't see it getting done, at least not before elections, and we'll see what happens in 2018. Great, great. Uh, we have someone calling from Dallas, from Texas. Dallas, are you there on the line? Hi, yes, I'm here. Great, great. Please ask away. Okay. Uh, so I'm in my 30s. I vaguely remember the riots in Los Angeles, more accurately remember the O.J. Simpson trial, how does the climate over the last five years, and really especially since Trump was elected, compare to those times when you were in the, in the moment on the ground? How does it compare? Uh, do you see divisions within these groups, these major groups that seem to be rising up, coming from many different sources? We see, you know, we saw Tea Party before, and we're seeing some nationalism now, some kind of different things. Do you see any divisions in those groups? Yeah, very good question, and why, why do I don't Cheryl and I take a take a shot at that. Um, so so ahead, uh, Cheryl and I both covered the um, Los Angeles riot uh, for, the, um, for the Los Angeles Times. I, I mean, I was at the corner of Florence and Normandy um, where the riot sort of broke out and where things were particularly uh, intense. And, um, and I mean, what, what I, I mean, one big difference between back then and something that I think is fairly, feels fairly new t today is um, how um, white supremacists, white nationalists feel, feel emboldened. Um, and these groups used to be um, rather fringe and, and people would, you know, wear masks and not, uh, you know, it would be a small number of people who would um, uh, publicly identify as, uh, as, as a member of, of such a group. And that seems to be, you know, in since the election, that seems to have changed markedly. Cheryl, do you uh, buy that? Yeah, no, you said exactly what I, was, what I was thinking. It also feels to me like, in a way, the whole country is engaged now. Like, in the, in, you know, during Los Angeles, we were having discussions, you know, about what was happening in Los Angeles, or even as recently as Ferguson and Baltimore, we were having discussions about what was happening in selected cities. And I think, you know, with the election campaign of 2016, when these, you know, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, whatever you want to call them, became emboldened, you know, we now have a whole country that is talking about race and, and in, a, in a new way because they feel emboldened. Yeah. It's a starker John, division. John is back with us. John, do you feel as though um, there's been a marked increase in racial incidents, racial animosity uh, since the election? 
Um, yeah, I mean, well, I think, you know, the objective standards of measuring that, if you look at hate crimes, things like that, as measured by, um, you know, the FBI or other groups, it would seem so. And I think, you know, one thing that we always have to kind of weigh it against is, you know, the advent of social media and how much more we're able to see those things now than before. Um, and how much of those things are no, now more blatantly open type things versus, you know, kind of the smaller so-called microaggressions that we've seen over the years. So, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly seems in the, in the public sphere that there has been a lot more. Um, and let's go to another um, caller. Um, we have um, we have uh, our next caller, 706 um, area code that's in Georgia. Uh, yes. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if you've done any investigative work into how this set of people becomes radicalized in this way, similar to the reporting you've done in the past about radicalization of Muslim youth through mosques. Is there a uh, coherent, if you will, recruiting approach yep. that practice set of people? Yeah, good question. I'll, I'm just going to repeat it so I can, I'm sure everyone heard it. How do we, ha, have we looked into how people become radicalized, how they um, join these, uh, these extremist groups, um, how they're recruited? Um, what do we know about that, uh, Cheryl, uh, John? I think that's an excellent question and the sort of the analogy to becoming radicalized, sort of radicalized domestically, I think is a really good and solid one. One thing that struck me in Charlottesville was that these were young white men. They were millennial men and seemingly, you know, young and particularly vulnerable to being recruited into this kind of movement. And I mean, I don't know as a, I have not personally done any, you know, deep investigative reporting um, about how that happens, but I think it's clear to me that it is happening. Yeah, good point. I mean, and one thing that is very clear is that a lot of these organizations, um, these racist organizations, are ex exist online primarily, and so they exist primarily as discussion groups. Um, they're in touch virtually. They don't necessarily um, have meetings in the, you know, in the woods in the middle of the night. They have virtual meetings, and this has made recruitment much easier. And it's something we have written about before. And the caller is is right that I think it merits, um, you know, more more coverage. Um, let's go to let's go to another caller, Cleveland. Hi, my question was. How can we speak the same language about race? Often, whites may talk about tolerance or the goal of colorblindness, but then we as blacks will hear that as people will only put up with us because they have to or will refuse to see us as who we really are or prefer to talk about respect, inclusion, or colorfulness. So what can we do to get to a point where we can speak the same language and have a common understanding? Yeah, let, let me, um, John, that's a good one for you. I mean, things seem so divided uh, racially in this country, um, and the caller from Cleveland is sort of asking, how do we bridge the divide? Um, how do we um, communicate across, across um, you know, um, the racial divide? Well, I think, you know, it, it is a very tricky thing. I think, you know, the start is, 
and not to like toot our horn as the New York Times, but I, but I think you know the way we kind of try to set up our race coverage is to make it interactive to have to hear from people from from all sides, you know, about what they believe and what they feel, and that's why we invite folks to write to us for race related and things like that. So I I think it's about it's, it's just about having that conversation. It's about having that uh, forum for that conversation in the first place. And then I guess the other thing I would say, I feel like um, when I talk to folks, it's, whether it be on you know one side or another, and on the side, and when it comes to police shootings, on the side of black activists or on the side of cops, it's really all or none, and there's no middle ground for people to have that conversation. So it, it's about, and I, I don't really know that I have the answer to solve this, but how do we get people to? even accept and be willing to hear that, hey, you know, this mother of a, of a cop or this cop might have a different view than, you know, the mother of a, of a young black man or, or the young black man himself. Um, how, how do we, because oftentimes of the line that I hear a lot from, from activists that I've interviewed is like, hey, I should not be around, I should not have to bear the burden of having to educate you and, 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 and tell you where you're wrong in your ways. Um, and in some ways, um, I guess, um, from interviewing people, I understand that frustration in the sense that folks feel that, you know, that, that, that it's already kind of stressful being, being part of a marginalized group. Why should you have to go and educate everyone else? But on the other sense, it takes people to actually do that education because the fact is that the, the country is very, you know, still very segregated racially in how we live. We're very segregated economically. Um, you know, we're very segregated, you know, when you look at the regions and, and then the, the, the socioeconomics and whatnot of it. So people don't understand each other. And, and how do you bridge that divide? You, you, I, think, I think you have to somehow get people first having the conversation, having the forum for it, and getting people to want to hear other people's arguments and, and explain to them when, you know, they may be wrong about something. Or, or, may, or not necessarily wrong, but or when they may have, you know, a misunderstanding or, or, or a distorted view of something, I should say. You know, John, you mentioned race-related, and, and people should sub subscribe to this newsletter because this is exactly what we try to do, create sort of a dialogue on race. And one thing that we produced was called Cringeworthy Words, and it was various um, times uh, staffers of different ethnicities talking about the word or words that caused dealing with race that really made them cringe. Did you participate in that? Did you uh, have one of the words? Yes, the word that I had was, I believe it was ethnic. Um, and this, this, this was, I had, I had a family member who had a personal experience with being called ethnic at work, a, a black family member. Um, and um, again, I think what came out of that, Mark, and we talked about this is that, you know, basically all these words, basically everyone has a different interpretation of every word, like, I think, Mark, I think you didn't like people of color or person of color, which I'm actually okay with using. And I think um, New York Times style, I think we use minorities, which I don't, this doesn't necessarily sit well with me because in a lot of places minorities are majority. Um, so I, I, I think that speaks to the heart of how this is really a Rorschach, you know, when it comes to race. It, 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 we're all looking at the same thing, but we all see different things, you know, and, and, and hear different things. So I think that's what makes the conversation so difficult. Yeah, and clearly there are no right answers on a lot of these things, and it's just really listening to someone else and trying to understand their perspective. Um, let's go to another caller. Uh, that was a good question. We have um, someone from Richmond, Virginia. Hi, I'm from Richmond. I live in Florida now, but I'm a graduate of the University of, of Virginia, and I had a 40-year career with the Federal Reserve in Richmond. And I can tell you that 
most of the people I knew never even thought about the statues as being racist. They were artistic. Uh, what's troubling to me is now that I, I really deplore the the hatred that's come out of the KKK and the neo-Nazis, but at the same time, what they've done is they've upended their own goals because they ostensibly wanted to preserve that one statue in, in Charlottesville. We know that was a ruse, but now they have created a an ultra reaction on the left to remove statues. It, and of course, the mayor of Richmond has promoted doing context. I, I support that. Having You could even have interactive context to turn these into teaching tools and preserve history, uh, update history, but, but not to ignore uh, or, or ignore the history. Yep, thank you. Cheryl, why don't you take that? I mean, to what degree is this, um, you know, roiling debate in the country about statues or is it about something else? I think statues are really a proxy for the debate that we're having about race. Um, I think also that reasonable people can can disagree. I mean, for some people, walking by these statues is very, very painful. I'm Jewish, and I think, how would I feel if there were a statue of Hitler, like right outside, like in Farragut Square, right outside the Washington Bureau of the Times? You know, I probably would feel a lot of pain as I walk past that. So. Um, yet I, I have met um, some African Americans who have said to me, you know, I think the statues ought to stay and be contextualized because I want my children and my grandchildren to know um, that, you know, that history. Um, but I, I, so I think part of it, I feel like I'm not being perfectly coherent here, but part of this is a debate about statues and about the real pain that people experience um, when they see them and they view them as symbols of hatred. But part of it is also a proxy, um, a ruse, as the gentleman said, um, for other issues. It's an ex become an excuse for white supremacists and white nationalists to rally and then provoke the left and... Um, create these further divisions that we've seen. Great. I mean, this is, this is actually, for us, um, wonderful to hear directly from the people who are, um, you know, reading our stories, subscribing to the Times. We're going to take one more question, and we do encourage you to participate in more of these calls, and, you know, I'd love to come back again and talk about other things. But we're going to take a call from uh, Rochester, um, no, from uh, New Jersey. Hi, I'd like to comment first on the statues and see what other people think. These are statues, frankly, I don't think of American history. They are statues of traitors to our American history. And I don't see it as in any way part of America's history. Um, if we had lost the revolution, we wouldn't be having statues to George Washington. Um, but I'd also like to hear what people have to say regarding um, the lack of political leadership in terms of dealing with these kind of race issues. Yeah, let's let's have um, let's have John Elligo take that the last part of that question. Um, John, let me just repeat the callers sort of saying um, to talk about the lack of political leadership on race. Um, we've, we, we had a black president for two terms who made some, you know, some, some, 
speeches on race who, who brought it up um, regularly. Um, we have a new president in office. What, what do you, what, what is your thoughts on how the leaders of the country are grappling with this subject? Well, I think it's uh, one of those tough things, right? I mean, I feel like the country is so balkanized right now, so everyone is so siloed that you get a lot of speaking to your base. So when, you know, I, I think, you know, if you look back at President Obama, there were definitely times, and he, he kind of had the tricky balance to walk, right? There were times when he would be giving speeches, and, and, and like when he talked about Trayvon Martin, he said, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. That was a moment that I think for a lot of black Americans really resonated. But then when it came to police shootings, he also did talk about, you know, the, the need for black Americans to, to, to basically obey, obey law and order and obey what cops say. And again, that did not play well to his base. So I think Obama played that tricky line. But the problem is when you would see when he would say certain things, um, the, the, uh, you know, that about, you know, there being violence against cops and, the, excuse me, violence by police officers and, and the need for uh, police to, to better police black communities. You have the, the people who are very strongly in support of the cops, you know, you kind of take it one way and then run with it. And, and then you have the other way when he would try and walk that bridge over to um, to say, you know, to put out a hand to to, to the, the police community or, or to, to a community that's that, to, to the non-black community, I guess. And he would get criticized on the other side. So it's kind of like walking that tricky balance that I think, you know, you can't really, it's just really hard to bring those sides together. And I think what, what we're seeing with the advent of Trump now, with, um, I think a lot of people, um, uh, or I guess what I've been seeing, a lot, a lot of sentiments, a lot of people who have issues, they wonder whether Trump is just playing to a certain base rather than um, doing things to bring the country together. So if you look at his initial response to Charlottesville, as I think Cheryl talked about earlier, is, um, when he talked about many sides, was he doing that not to alienate the segments where David Duke said during that protest that we're here to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump? So clearly there are people in that segment who are strong Trump supporters. So how does he, how does he address that issue without alienating political support. That's, I mean, that, that, that's kind of one of the calculuses that you have to look at with, um, with his response, you know? So I think, yeah. I, I think it's kind of a tricky thing that all, you know, when you look at from the presidential level that they're walking, and, um, and I think throughout Washington, I mean, that kind of filters down when you look at how divided uh, Washington is right now in terms of Democrats and Republicans not really being able to get anything done together. Yep. John, thank you very much. We're actually out of time, so I want to thank everybody. I want to thank John and Cheryl for getting on the line, and then everybody who participated. This was really great, and we'd love for you to come back again. We have a whole bunch of people who signed up for questions, and, and we see you here, and we apologize we weren't able to get to you. We, um, we Another shout-out to this, all of the students who are on the line. Um, we're glad you participated. We hope it was valuable. And we love the fact that you're reading um, what we're doing and uh, tune in to the, you know, the, the newspaper and online tomorrow because we're going to have a lot of great stories on the flooding and on a lot of other things. So thank you very much.